Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, first, a poem, Summer Lightning, a poem about a hummingbird, a housefly, a kitchen table, nectar, and yogurt. I was the inaugural Poet Laureate of Nevada County, California, 217 to 219. Summer Lightning. In the morning, while it's still cool, we hose down the yard, watch a red sun crest the ridge, haloed in wildfire smoke that drifted 200 miles and stalled here against the mountains. A housefly is walking across the table, six tiny feet leaving tracks in the yogurt. One cat has already eaten a hummingbird. If you think about joy long enough, maybe death will make sense, a matter of balance. The deer caught in that fire outside Redding, the rabbits and bear cubs, king snakes, and you know when 30 boats have melted at anchor in Whiskey Town, fish in that lake have perished. Displaced blue herons, mergansers. I am not asking forgiveness for the hummingbird. I plant the flowers and water them. Who else would come for their nectar? And what cat wouldn't leap at the chance? In this world, there is order wherever you look. Cause, effect, logic, consequence. A dry winter and a car backfire or summer lightning ignites just one branch which bends in the wind the flames create to brush another. A few hours later, it's 45 square miles and uncontained. The fire jumps the river after supper, headed downtown, and cars crawl away from their homes in a dark lit by headlights and flung sparks, chased by the crackle and gathering roar, song of a small city burning. Thank you, Molly Fish and the Academy of American Poets. And next on Arts Express. As a storyteller, I'll lay out the events exactly as I remember them. Take this with you. We're publishing it next quarter. I want you to believe this, after all. That'll be hard enough as it is. You'll have real questions after you've read it. I've spent over a year speaking with him. He told me things that you couldn't imagine. How old is he? Fourteen. It's a brave kid. Hi, it's Pete Logan. I was really impressed by your book. I swear it's really you. Why wouldn't it be me? Hello, this is Donna Logan. Hey. I'm sorry to cut this short, but he's a very sick boy. He doesn't have very long. This must be very hard for you. I'm worried about Pete. I don't think it's possible they're being a little melodramatic here. They don't seem so over the top. Why would someone do that? I don't know. Money, maybe? To sell a book? There's ways to prove this. The number you have reached is not in service. There is no record of any Pete Logan. You think there's some sort of hoax your way off base? Why? Because! You could. Whoever he is. Know anyone who actually met Pete Logan? A doctor, a social worker, a neighbor, anybody? Aren't you gonna say hello, Gabriel? Can't wait to see Pete. You don't wanna talk to me? what's happening. There's no way I'm taking you to see it. No way. This isn't one of your stories, Gabriel. You have to call the police. She tried to kill you. Maybe there is no child. Can't let you do this. Hello. Your story doesn't have an ending, Gabriel. 
This one is called The Night Listener. And those were scenes from The Night Listener, a kind of radio show noir in which Rory Culkin, then just 13 years old in 2006, co-stars with the late acting legend Robin Williams as a highly unusual, to say the least, mysterious elusive caller to the show. Culkin, the youngest among eight siblings who has starred in Lords of Chaos, Scream 4, Waco, and Signs, and with rather strange beginnings in his prolific acting career, playing younger versions of his many actor brothers, including Home Alone's Macaulay Culkin, shares memories of Robin Williams and the impact on his life during these conversations, and his current portrayal in the dramatic series Under the Banner of Heaven, a story of violent faith, a page-to-screen adaptation delving into the murky depths of religious fanaticism in this country, in this case, crimes and cover-ups in the Mormon church. His second film about cults following Waco, says Colkin, it's always interesting to me what people use to justify things under the banner of heaven using religious texts and how it's been bent to please the American government. First, some scenes from under the banner of heaven, then Rory Culkin. Heavenly Father, we ask that we might be instruments in thy hand to fix what we find broken. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A woman and her 15-month-old child were murdered in their home. We are asking the public for their help. We aren't a community that usually locks its doors. So for now, we feel it's prudent to err on the side of caution. The evidence points to things and to beliefs that I have only ever heard whisperings about. I don't go digging in the past. And neither should you. From the first moment anyone set eyes on her, they were hooked. Evil presence is in his family. What if this case isn't just a husband who turned against his wife? What if tonight is just the first edge of a bone? Finally working its way out of our own desert's floor. Hands up right now! This goes beyond just a murder. Beyond everything I believe. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why is Under the Banner of Heaven a dramatic series you wanted to be part of? Um, I guess just because of uh, everyone involved, and you know, it's based on the the book, the bestseller by John Krakauer, and um, you know, it's a uh, Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, and Jason Bateman producing, and, and Andrew Garfield attached. And Lance Black wrote it, and there was just too many great uh, ingredients that uh, I had to had to re- try really hard to be a part of it. And what are you up to in The Banner of Heaven, and what drew you to want to inhabit your character, Samuel Lafferty? Yeah, I play Samuel Lafferty. He's one of the, the Lafferty brothers, and, and after the murder of, of Brenda and Erica, um, everyone was sort of saying, look, look to her in-laws, look to her family. It's going to come from her family. So uh, all of the brothers were sort of investigated, and um, yeah, it was just it was just uh, an interesting opportunity to play a uh, religious fundamentalist, and uh, you know, it's it's pretty unique experience. Now, this isn't the first time you've been part of True Stories, along with being part of the real life miniseries Waco. Both of these productions also touch on cult themes. So, would you say that similarity is by design or coincidence? Um, at least on my end, it's, it's coincidence, but maybe, uh, you know, seeing me in that setting inspired them to hire me. I, I don't know. And what has inspired you to be part of productions that delve into cults? Um, 
don't know. It's just it's really interesting. It's always interesting to me um, what people use to justify things, and then under the banner of heaven, they're using you know re- this religious text to justify murder. Um, and then, sort of, the deeper you look into it, uh, they're not. They were sort of right in a way um, because the the text did sort of justify what what they had done, and uh, so it's just about this debate within Mormonism about, um, you know, what does the text really mean, and, and has it been, you know, uh, has it been bent to sort of please the American government, and, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a deep one. <laughs> and what are the challenges for you of being part of real-life stories? I think there's a bit more of a responsibility when you're doing a, a true story, because these are, you know, obviously real people, and, and usually based in some sort of real tragedy where people lost their lives, so you have to have a, a certain amount of respect for, for the material. And, um, yeah, I think it's just, there's a bit more of a responsibility. It's, it's not just, uh, you know, be creative. It's be creative, but also, you know, do do this real person justice. Uh, so it's, in a way, you're, you're sharing a role more when it's a true story. Now, you starred with the late Robin Williams in The Night Listeners back in 2006, which is interestingly about a radio host. What are your memories of Robin Williams, and would you say he inspired you in any way as an actor? Yeah, Robin was incredible. Uh, I remember I, he was really appreciative that I, I came in to do off-camera work for him. So, uh, you know, cause in that film, we have a lot of phone conversations. Um, so I would drive into set wherever they were and then just be off camera and, and feeding him his lines. And he would always just say how appreciative he was and, and sort of would treat me like an adult. I mean, I think I was 13 at the time and he, you know, kept calling me man and thank thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate your work. And, and, um, and then after we wrapped, he sent me a, a PlayStation and it was just the nicest thing because he always treated me like an adult. And then he, but he knew I was a kid and knew I wanted video games. So it wasn't until after the work was done, he was like, here's your, here's your game kid. <laughs> And would you say he's anything in person, like the zany characters he tends to play? Yeah, I, mean, I remember in rehearsal, he would he would just do bits. He would just break out into a, a comedic bit and just talk about, you know, what it's like to have a kid and how it's a strange creature that sort of, you know, prides themselves between you and your, your significant other. And, you know, he would just, he, yeah, he would go off on, on tangents. It was just always really incredible. I had no problem sort of putting the script down and just listening to the guy. <laughs> And what do you look for or not in the characters you've been inspired to play? I don't know. I, I, I've been noticing when I get when I get the role of uh, someone who's sort of a, a normal person or an average person, I sort of struggle with it a little bit. Uh, you know, if I'm supposed to be funny or something, I sort of struggle a bit. But if it's a, a character that's sort of out there and... Uh, you know, I, I tend to pick that up quickly for whatever reason, whether it be, you know, wh- whether they're crazy or, you know, just a little strange that, that I've been gravitating toward that for whatever reason. I don't know what that says about me. Well, what is it about playing normal people that you feel alienated from those roles? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just, maybe I'm just not looking hard enough uh, and I'm not finding the bridge between myself and, and that character. But, um, you know, when it, when it's, when they're a little more out there, uh, I, I, maybe it's just more fun to fill in the blanks. Yeah. Now you started out in movies playing versions of your actor brothers. So how have you come about distinguishing yourself from your brothers in your own right? Uh, that's a good question. I guess I never, I, I never really thought about it too much. Um, you know, we we don't really discuss work that much, you know, uh, me and my brothers. So I don't know. I, I guess they, we don't really influence each other uh, when it comes to work. And what's it like making the transition from playing them as younger people to being yourself in movies? Um, you know, I think when I was playing them younger, I was hardly aware of, you know, what, what was going on, what I was doing. And then, you know, the first time I started reading scripts on my own, you know, maybe 13, uh, and then just, just the excitement of, of figuring things out, you know, of, of reading something a second time and, and knowing, you know, 
what the scene is actually about uh, underneath. And, and I don't know, that's just always been exciting. What do you feel is the biggest challenge your millennial generation faces today and you as a millennial actor? Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 it's weird because, you know, we're obviously starting to, to fragment into our own realities. Um, and I, I don't, I haven't gone on the, the social media boat. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's a, that's the the... the the thing that pops out as, a, as a, you know, the changing of the guard is, is all of these actors inviting us into their lives and, and you know, showing us photos of their kitchen and, and things. And I don't know, I'm a big fan of, of not going behind the curtain. And, you know, I, I hate when they do, um, you know, the making of a movie or, you know, showing us the set. I, I'd like to keep that curtain closed. I think it's, it's more exciting. I don't know. And is there anything coming up for you next? Uh, yeah, I just got done filming something with uh, Donald Glover, but that probably won't come out for a while. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of uh, sort of pre-production things. But right now, I'm just doing the uh, making the rounds and sort of promoting this Under the Banner of Heaven. And any last word about Under the Banner of Heaven? Why should people see it, and also why it's important to see it? Um, probably more for the the writer and producers, but uh, I don't know. I, I think you know you should see it because it'll 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 make you think and hopefully move you in some direction, which is sort of the point of all this, right? And when Rory Culkin looks in the mirror and sees his real self after playing so many different characters, what does he see? Um, he's a guy that probably has to wash his hair. <laughs> I don't know. I, I see a, a work in progress. Very early stages, I, I think, still. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thank you so much, Rory Culkin, for calling into the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Bye. And Under the Banner of Heaven is in release from FX Networks. And coming up next on the show, your one-minute Marxist, the first in a series of Listen Up episodes. Your one-minute Marxist is a presentation of retired Detroit auto worker and former union rep of the United Auto Workers, Darrell Waistline Mitchell, a founding member as well of the League of Revolutionary Workers and RUM, the Revolutionary Union Movement. Mitchell is the real deal and the author of Marxist Glossary and the pamphlet Detroit, A History of Struggle, A Vision of the Future. I'm Darrell Mitchell, your one-minute Marxist. Yeah, I know, I know. Michael Hudson's new book, The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism, is a kick in the head. It continues a story he'd been telling for at least 40 years, but specifically for the last 20 years. What is the story? The story seeks to describe the new economy, and that's the rub. Why? Because it's not actually the new economy. Hudson describes the new financial architecture, the new financial system that's imposed upon the new economy. What is the new economy? The new economy is the production and distribution of things based on robotics. The industrial capitalism, in the title of this book, it tells a story of the evolution of the industrial capitalist system and how we got to this point in time. The beauty of this book is that it explains why debt collection, rent, is evil and how the new financial architectures holds us in a new form of financial bondage. We will be discussing this a lot more in detail as time goes on. I'm Daryl Mitchell, your one-minute Marxist. I'm out. Thank you, Daryl Mitchell.
This is Danny Trejo, and right now you're listening to Arts Express. And I want to send a shout out to all you guys doing time and anybody that's in the pen. Hey, God bless you guys. Don't forget, man. You know, just keep stepping. When I got out of prison, I, I had to like change my attitude. I had to like do whatever I could to help other people. So when I got out, I made it my my life. I dedicate my life to helping other people. And I have to say that everything good that has happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else. And that's the way I live my life. I think that's the fascination because a lot of people still perceive me as this badass, mean guy that wouldn't cross the street to save a puppy. Awesome. Listening to Arts Express, and next up on the program, things are not what they appear to be. The magic of art and the art of magic. In our deep dive episode this week, our Arts Express resident practitioner of both the arts and magic probes connections to novels, music, and politics, deception, deceit, propaganda, and the CIA and NSA Twitter pages, along with quote butterfly wings, someone's dining room table, and the confrontation with the impossible. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Things are not what they appear to be. Every era has its predominant form of art that responds to and speaks to its age. In America at one time, the great American novel was what every sensitive soul aspired to. Later, youngsters wanted to be rock stars as music became the motive force of the age. Afterwards, film was deemed art and everyone wanted to be a film director. And eventually the music of the streets, rap, and hip-hop became the kind of art that all the cool kids wanted to pursue. But I want to make a pitch today for a different kind of art form to represent our present age, one which is usually relegated to the lesser variety arts like juggling or ventriloquism, and that is the art of magic. It may sound strange, but I feel that magic speaks to us today in a unique way. If there's any one message that art needs to say over and over again today, it's that things are not what they appear to be. In 2022, we live in the lap of deception, deceit, and propaganda. And it's not even covert anymore. It's out in the open for all to see. The deep state is hardly deep anymore. The CIA and the NSA have Twitter pages and recruitment ads on YouTube. Their directors and agents are all over MSNBC, CNN, and Fox as supposed news sources and even anchors. Each day we have government toadies in front of us telling us that we must go to war, telling us that the future of our children and ourselves are worth nothing. But somehow we have billions to spend on tanks and drones and ammunition. We're facing one of the most incredible onslaughts of propaganda ever, delivered to the cell phones in our pockets with deep penetration into our daily lives. And they lie and lie and lie. It's not that we can't handle the truth. We have no idea what the truth is anymore. We are building our lives on false premises and unwarranted assumptions and incomplete information, no matter how clever we think we are, 
no matter how clearly we think we think. What can be done? It's disheartening, but experience and research shows that simply giving people more facts does surprisingly little to change their beliefs. The research shows that rather than being swayed by opposing factual arguments, people dig in even deeper into supporting their beliefs. This is what psychologists call cognitive immunization. If you show people that they're wrong about something important, they only cling to their positions more tightly. We all find a way to hold on to our positions. We live in a world so dangerous and we have so little left that we can call our own that to take our defenses down is to be stripped naked. We can't let that happen. We have to cling to our carefully constructed world view, even if it has some holes in it. We feel that we can't possibly afford to give in to doubt now. But doubt is what we need now if we are to survive. All-consuming doubt. Doubt about everything, about everyone, but most of all, doubt about all our conclusions and beliefs. The Buddhist teaching is that if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. Believe no teachers. Cultivate a beginner's mind. Don't know is the answer to all questions. You can only begin to see clearly when your mind is calm and free from any preconceptions whatsoever. Can we put ourselves into a position where we abandon all positions so that we may actually come to see what is before us? We all respond to the latest news. What is our position? What's my team's position? What should I think? What does my team leader think? How do we just see clearly or get into a place where we don't worry about our position, but just see what's there? First, we have to understand above all that things are not what they appear to be. We have to be humbled and have self-doubt. Doubt is what we need. That is why, as much as I love theater, film, and music, the art we need most today is magic. Now, I don't mean Harry Potter magic or black magic, but magic done for the purpose of entertainment, either on the stage or maybe even close up at someone's dining room table. So from now on, when I speak of magic and magicians, I'm speaking of magic for entertainment, the magic of David Copperfield and David Blaine. I like watching magic because it's a humbling experience. If it's done well, it reminds its audience that what we think we know, we don't, that nothing is what it appears to be. And it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with the nature of human psychology and perception. When magicians are successful, they not only entertain you, but get across the meta message that you have no idea how the world really works. Your senses and logic are a thing of shreds and patches. They can be easily tricked. Things are not what they appear to be. If one purpose of magic is to teach us that we can't trust our senses, then why don't magicians just expose their tricks to their audiences? And there are several reasons why not. First, the methods of magic for the most part are quite mundane, not nearly as exotic as a spectator might imagine. And if you were to find out that you were deceived by such a puny apparatus or principle, you would get angry first at yourself for being fooled and then at the magician for using such humdrum means. You don't want to peek behind the scenes at a magic show. It will inevitably be disappointing. Lots of people labor mightily to present an illusion and why pull apart the butterfly's wings to understand how it flies. But worse, exposing a trick does very little to stop an audience member from being fooled again by another method, or even the very same method. The very fact of the audience member's expectation is used against them. 
one well-known magician's gambit is to tell an audience that most magicians do this trick by doing such and such, but I would never do such and such. And then they go on right ahead with doing such and such with a slight modification, and the audience is fooled again. The audience's downfall was that they thought they were in the know, but they weren't. The con man plays the same game. After all, the very term con man is short for confidence man. Once you think you know, Ah, ha, it was really Russia that was behind that stolen election. Uh, no, you've been fooled again. But magic is much kinder than the con man or CIA reporter. For one, it gives you entertainment in return. But more importantly, for our purposes, you go home not with answers. You get no answers, but you are filled with the feeling of magic. Now, what is that feeling? According to the great contemporary magician Whit Hayden, that feeling might best be understood by comparing it to what happens to an audience watching a play in a theater. Now, in the theater, we make a deal with the actors that we will, as Coleridge said, willingly suspend our disbelief. That is, we know the story up there is not real, but we'll play along willingly and we'll respond as if the story were real. Now, the key phrase here is the willing suspension of disbelief. We do it when we read a novel and we do it when we go to the movies. So if we go to see a production of, say, The Cherry Orchard, we don't angrily demand our money back because the only trees around are painted on a piece of swaying canvas. We don't cry fake if the actor playing Peter Pan has wires attached that can be seen, we can still enjoy the story because we act as if the story were real. We don't complain at the Lion King that the giraffes weren't really giraffes and so on. We willingly suspend our disbelief in order to enter into a fictive world. But a magic entertainment tries to do exactly the opposite. The magician doesn't ask you to willingly suspend your disbelief. The magician asks instead that you keep your disbelief. Don't go into some fictive world, the magician says, but stay here with me in the here and now, and I'll still show you something in this shared reality that will put your mind into a dilemma. Because when the magician makes the card rise from the deck, with no apparent physical agency, the spectator's mind has to deal with the following dilemma, this contradiction. On the one hand, I know what I just saw is impossible, yet on the other, I just saw proof of it before my eyes. Oh, wait, he did it with threads. No, he enclosed the deck in a glass jar. Uh, well, maybe the deck had a motor in it. No, no, I shuffled the deck. So the spectator goes through this in his mind and keeps coming back to the same dilemma. On the one hand, I know that what I just saw is impossible. Yet on the other hand, I just saw proof of it before my eyes. And it's that clash that creates the feeling of magic in spectators. In Whit Hayden's words, quote, the confrontation with the impossible creates a dilemma that can't be resolved with deductive logic. This creates a burr under the saddle of the brain that causes cognitive dissonance. There is no such thing as the impossible, yet I just saw the impossible. Unquote. This is the doubt that leads spectators into considering that their assurance and worldview might just be flawed. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than your philosophy. Now, for some people, this can be very unpleasant use. The magician sugarcoats the experience by having an engaging personality and presents mysteries of wonder. He or she doesn't seek to batter down any belief as strong as, say, a political belief. Because just the vanish of a coin can be more challenging to our worldview than a three-volume critique of one's politics. 
It's one reason why some people don't like magic shows. There are some things we don't like to be reminded of, and the gaps in our narratives about the world around us is one of them. Magicians have a saying, misdirection works. What they mean by that is that there are certain principles of deception that work even when you are aware of the principle. If you understand how propaganda works, but think you are immune from its effects, then you don't understand how propaganda works. The fish doesn't know that it is swimming in a sea of water, and we don't understand that we too are swimmers, swimming in a sea of assumptions that we never know are there, let alone think to question. Watching magic is a little wake-up call to ourselves, like a bird bumping into its reflection in a mirror. Things are not what they appear to be. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Mill. Express. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine, <laughs> Iraq, too. anyway, uh, <laughs> 75. Uh. And that was, well, George Bush mistakenly denouncing the invasion of Iraq instead of Ukraine, the former on his watch as president, and then laughing it off as if his destruction of that nation, even if a current slip of the tongue meant nothing though in no way alone when it comes to unintentional buffoonery on the part of presidents crossing political lines, with Biden recently mistaking North Korea as a loyal U.S. ally and reportedly being, quote, whisked away by a person in a bunny suit to prevent him from answering a reporter's question, and on another occasion seemingly, quote, shaking hands with thin air following his press conference but getting back to Bush, it seems that the Russian pranksters Vladimir and Alexei, alias Volvan and Lexis, respectively, have been at it again, this time phoning up Bush and with Volvan convincing him that he's Ukrainian President Zelensky. We just got hold of that interview in its entirety in this Cancel Culture Uncancelled episode, even as the duo have been blocked on YouTube. Opening with a teaser... And while Bush engages enthusiastically with the supposed Zelensky, touching on Pentagon biolabs, orange revolutions, Churchill, Angelina Jolie, Colin Powell's test tube, Monica Lewinsky, missiles, and Bush urging Zelensky that, quote, your mission is to destroy as many Russian troops as possible. I wanted Ukraine into NATO. for a while, Russia would be more cooperative. And then Putin changed dramatically. Your mission is to destroy as many Russian troops as you can. Slavo Bon and Alexis, bring them on. 
I'm very proud of you. Ravana Lexus. Oh, hello, Mr. President. Glad to see you. Glad to hear you. How are you there? I'm really. I'm doing well, I mean, and I hope you okay, are as well. Yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you for your, for taking the time for me. I'm very grateful to you because you are a very, very wise person. Uh, former um, former president of Ukraine, Yushinka, told me a lot about you. How you helped our country. I yeah, you you didn't want to take Russia into NATO, did you? No. I wanted him on the fringe of NATO. I wanted Ukraine into NATO. Mm -hmm. No, I mean... No, I, thought for, I thought for a while we'd yeah. be, uh, Russia would be uh, more cooperative, and then Putin changed dramatically. I think what he wanted to do was sit on the fringe of NATO to make sure NATO was not offensive, but defensive. Mm-hmm. No, but you always wanted to uh, take Ukraine into NATO, not Russia, but Ukraine, always, as I remember. That's right. See, I, f I felt Ukraine needed to be in the EU and in NATO. No, um, the, the, you know that the narrative, uh, then in the early 90s, Secretary of State Baker promised Gorbachev not to spread, not to expand NATO. But this would be completely wrong, especially with the threats that Russia poses now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Listen, times change. Uh, Baker was, uh, you know, he was the Secretary of State for my dad, uh, which mm -hmm. was years ago. And so, uh, and the United States must be flexible, uh, adjusting to the times. And mm -hmm. that's why you're finding such strong support for your country now. No, I mean, I mean, it doesn't matter what Baker really uh, promised Gorbachev in past. We have to see what is going on now. That's right. You know, I mean, in fact, now it's a war not only of Ukraine. It's a war of West world against Russians. Yeah. Of course, Russia was offended that uh, NATO began to expand. That's a problem for them. That's why they started. And I'm talking about determination of DPR and LPR at uh, regions of uh, occupied regions by Russia on east side. So he, uh, Putin tries to show that there's the same uh, example like with Kosovo. You remember then uh, in 2007 you recognized Kosovo as an independent right. country and he used the same methodic. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think if you prevail, or when you prevail, uh, a lot of these other issues go off the table. Mm -hmm. uh, your mission is to destroy as many Russian troops as you can, and the question is, will you continue to receive the help you need? And I certainly hope so. And it's very important for the United States to continue in the mm -hmm. lead of providing you the, the, uh, the support you need. You've got good, it seems to me, you've got good communications with the administration. Mm -hmm. You know, your Secretary of Defense and people like that are continually informing our military mm -hmm. of what's needed. And our military is very supportive of what you're doing, President. Mm -hmm. Oh, you support us with javelins and many other missiles. So it's great. But last time, uh, the U.S. has sent us Angelina Jolie. <laughs> it's a kind of joke. <laughs> yeah. No, Mr. President, I think that you, uh, I, I don't know how to turn Russians against Putin. I know that you have, uh, many NGOs have done a great job to arrange orange revolutions in uh, post-Soviet countries for so many years. Uh, so they helped a lot. So how we can, uh, how we can work in uh, in Russia now, to make them to make people uh, to start understand things, how to change the system inside Russia with uh, with NGOs. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, uh, you know, the information war is very important, and uh, you know we've got experts on our staff, 
And uh, obviously they're having to wire around Russian blackouts. The story with Colin Powell's uh, test tube at the UN, he uses uh, it like a propaganda now. Or it was big plan to bring uh, the, the democracy to Iraq. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, you know, you're living in the past too much, brother. <laughs> I, because I, I, love, I love history. Because I love to get good advice, not to make mistakes in uh, in present. I wanted to apologize for your uh, boy, Saakashvili, Michael. I had to quick him out. I got tired of him. He was my advisor in in Ukraine. He was constantly uh, tr using drugs in our administration and wanted uh, a lot to mo of money. Yeah, I know. Look, he... Uh, you know, <laughs> he's a rambunctious uh, boy at heart. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, he, uh, yeah, we had a problem with him in Georgia. Mm -hmm. and he, uh, Putin laid a trap mm -hmm. and he fell into it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and he kind of panicked mm -hmm. during that period of time. You should have asked me whether or not he should have been inside your government. I would have given you advice, but... Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, I, I hadn't talked to Shaka Zvili since 2008. Mm. You know, um, but he also failed joining uh, to NATO. That is his big fault. Yeah, well, if Shaka Zvili was uh, true to his roots, he'd still be in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Not running around Ukraine and other places. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it, it, that frustrated me. He got elected, he did a good job for a while. There was pushback to his administration, mm -hmm. and uh, I would thought he would have stayed and fought for Georgian democracy. Mm -hmm. But instead, he immediately goes to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Bad boy. <laughs> is he still in Ukraine? Let me ask you this. Is he still in Ukraine? Yes, he has a citizenship. I gave him it back. But it's like an anecdote, like a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let me ask you this. Does he have a uniform on or is he fighting the Russians? Mm -hmm. Is he fighting the Russians? You gave him citizenship. He ought to be fighting the Russians. Ah, yeah. You know, uh, we were able to... Pre um, I also would like to thank you. We were able to preserve uh, your uh, legacy in Ukraine. For example, those uh, bio laboratories that the United States has... Uh, donated on the territory of our country. Uh, it's a program of Pentagon, you remember? It's uh, on the yeah. post-Soviet uh, territory uh, that Pentagon has uh, donated many bio-laboratories. And we managed to evacuate them to a safe place now. So the Russians, okay. so Russians did not get anything from that laboratories. Good. Yeah, you're smart. Yesterday, I met with our heroes heroes of Ukraine, they, uh, they were fighting on the information front and then they were um, mobilized into, uh, recruited into uh, Ukrainian army. They are pilots like you and they hit many Russian planes. I tried to award them, but they said no. Let, they said, let us please talk to the President Bush. I told that I will have conversation with you. And they say, we are his fans. What he really did in uh, his presidency. Uh, and they are my great friends. Maybe they will lead Ukrainian future. Such a guys, such a young guys who is really fighting for democracy. Uh, they dreamed of talking to you. And yeah, if if you don't mind, I will put them on the line and they will talk to you many good things if you don't really mind. And you I don't mind. Okay, let me connect them. If you let me, if you let will say to my friends uh Slava Vavan and Lexus, tell tell please. Slava Vavan and yeah. Lexus, it's our heroes. Slava Vovan and Lexus. Okay, Slava Vovan and Lexus. Bring them on. I will put them on the line. Vavan and Lexus. Okay. Just a moment, please. I will put them. Okay. Okay, just a moment.
Hello, Mr. President. Adage, how are you doing? We're fighting for our independence. Well, I'm very proud of you. We are and also I pilots like you. There you go. There you go, yeah. <laughs> like you, even. Where is the truth? Where is the power? Yeah. In, in, in the money. Yeah. No. That's right. So the brother is saying that it's not in the money. Я считаю, что сила в правде. Кому правда, тот и сильнее. Вот ты обманул кого-то, денег нажил. И что? No, no, no. Just feel, feel like with your heart. Feel the passion. Потому что правды за тобой нет. No, just passion. feel, just feel what we are trying to express. No, I can feel it, but more importantly, I see it when uh, you resist Russia. And yeah, when you of course. Fight the Russians, and here's my here's my suggestion. <laughs> Keep fighting. I will fight. We will fight. Anyway. Don't let up. Well, the truth's with you. Truth with us. Yes, it is you and Zelensky. I told Zelensky. I told Zelensky. He's like Winston Churchill. And, uh, yeah, he is our president. Yeah, he's great. And and he, he's like Monica Lewinsky also. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys. You. Great talking to you. God bless okay, you. We will, put you we, we will put you on uh, President Zelensky again, okay? Okay, yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah, for good talking to you. Thank you. Slava Rasiye. Okay. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.